Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan and our reader, who is not in her chair right at the moment, is Cara tonight. And our title is Give the Kingdom to the Beast. Now, this is a weird title and, uh, uh, and it's going to get a lot weirder tonight. Um, scripture has a lot of material in it that is strange and some, I would have to say, might even strike uh, gentle eyes and ears as disgusting. And we're going to read some things tonight that are disgusting, not for their own sake, but it just happens that this phrase is scriptural about giving the kingdom to the beast. And what exactly is that talking about? Giving a kingdom to a beast, like kingdom would be human beings, a structure of society and so on. Why? Wouldn't that be bad to give your kingdom to the beast? Does that mean the kingdom's going to become sort of bestial or horrible in some way? Uh, and yet the scripture says that God put it in their hearts to give their kingdom to the beast. I mean, that's a good thing. You know, we're going to be looking at what on earth that means. And uh, would you care to join us on that journey, good friends? Let's open with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you for gathering us in your most holy name. We open the pages of your word, Lord, seeking you. Where are you in this book? What is it that you seek to teach us tonight? Amen. Sending love out to all of you, people here in the room, people out there online and on the audio and on the phone. It's a blessing to be with you. And uh, I hope this Bible study doesn't rub you the wrong way. Um, I wanted to start with a little anecdote that was in my life. Um, uh, when, you know when you're a child, like your taste buds are particularly sensitive, I think, when you're a child, generally. And so there's a lot of foods that people give you to eat that are just plain disgusting. You know, they're, they're not nice and they're not fun. And uh, probably the most disgusting thing I was regularly fed as a child, this is in post-war England, believe it or not, I was a little Brit, I had a little British accent. And, um, and uh, we were fed liver every week uh, because that was sort of the thing, you know, this is healthy food or, or whatever. So fed, and, and to me, it was like death in an old boot. You know, it was just so disgusting. I hated it so much. And uh, then later on, interestingly, I moved from post-war England to a part of southern Ontario in Canada that was a very Germanic region, you know, who had been enemies with the Brits and so on. And they had changed the name. It used to be called Berlin, but they changed the name to Kitchener and, uh, because of the war and so on. But there was still a lot of Germanic influence there. And one of the disgusting things I was fed there was sauerkraut, which to me as a young person just seemed like... First of all, cabbage, I mean, come on. And then you, then it's sour, you know, then you like rot it. I mean, people, you know, this is not edible and you shouldn't ever do that. Have you ever heard of pancakes? You know, there are wonderful things that you can eat um, that are not liver or sauerkraut. So, uh, so I go through my life and I, I you know, 
get on a healthy diet and I'm doing all these things. I'm doing exercise and all this kind of stuff. And recently I'm talking to a nutritionist. I'm sort of collapsing a couple of different conversations here. But I'm talking to a nutritionist and saying, it just seems like there's something missing in my life. I eat very carefully. I watch the, all, all this stuff and everything. But, but uh, what do you think I'm missing? Well, what do you think the nutritionist said? <laughs> Sauerkraut and liver, you know? You need to eat more disgusting stuff. Uh, she didn't put it that way, but that's what I heard on my end. <laughs> you know, that disgusting stuff that you rejected is actually very healthy, and there's something missing if you don't have that in your diet. Now, I'm not telling everybody to go out and eat that, but, but it bears on our topic tonight, which is the only reason I would trouble you, good friends, with that information. Uh, but there's something about Scripture that is both disgusting, so disgusting in a way and so offensive, and we've talked about this a lot in Bible study, that it's been very widely rejected. You know, there's still lots of people who read the Bible and buy the Bible and so on. But a lot of people have, you know, in whole continents have pretty much rejected it or turned their back on it as if it were liver and sauerkraut. Uh, but I think Scripture is saying this is liver and sauerkraut that you should be eating, you know? It's disgusting, and it's good for you, you know? So that sort of sets up a little bit where we're going tonight. So let's look at Revelation chapter 17. We're in the book of Revelation. Hello, and this chapter is a very, very disgusting, off-putting chapter where this phrase occurs, giving the kingdom to the beast. Why would you give, wouldn't you give the beast to the kingdom or wouldn't you get the beast out of the kingdom or something? Why would you give the kingdom to the beast? What could this possibly mean? Let's just read the whole revolting chapter. Start at 17 verse 1 there. Okay. <clears throat> I have new glasses. I'm not sure I can see through them yet. <laughs> okay, good. All right. That, that'll, if, you know, we might have some new readings tonight. So. <laughs> okay. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Okay, so we're already a little edgy. What, what would you rate this? You know, uh, uh, okay, go on. With whom, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Mm. It's kind of earthy, isn't it? Okay, go on. So he carried me away in, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Okay, now the beast is part of our focus tonight. Uh, so here's this beast. This woman is sitting on this scarlet beast that's full of names of blasphemy and has seven heads and ten horns, which is kind of difficult to picture. So think about it. sounds horrible. And think about this beast. Go on. The woman was arrayed in, <clears throat> excuse me, in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Now that's pretty nasty, I think. And, and, um, and so this is this nice golden cup, but it's got this disgusting stuff. I don't even know what it is, but it's disgusting. Go on. 
and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. <laughs> yeah, my, my um, uh, <laughs> I don't know how my eight-year-old granddaughter found out about abomination, but uh, she said to her mother recently about some guy, he's abominating me. <laughs> um, anyway, go on. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of, martyrs of Jesus. Mm. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So drunk with blood is also pre pretty disgusting. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty raunchy chapter. Go on. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Ah, so we're going to be told both about the woman and about the beast. Okay, go on. So this, this will be helpful. An angel is going to explain it to us. Let's hear. The beast that you saw was and is not... Okay. Was and is not. Okay. And will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. It's hard to understand why you would go uh, make it all the way out of a bottomless pit only to go to perdition, but go on. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Oh, now hang on a second. Okay, let's look at that for a second. So, so you have people whose names were not written in the book of life. You know, we've heard about the book of life elsewhere in scripture. These are people whose names are not written in the book of life. And when they behold the beast, they're amazed. It's a beast that was and is not and yet is. Okay, <laughs> good. Go on. <laughs> yeah, it's good, isn't it? Okay. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Okay, so we're way off into allegory or something. So the seven heads are seven mountains that she's... I thought she was sitting on a scarlet beast and I thought she was sitting on waters. But okay, she's sitting on seven mountains as well. Go on. There are also seven kings. Okay, good. Seven kings I can understand. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. Go on. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven. <laughs> okay. And is going to perdition. Oh, and it's going I'm to perdition. Okay. I'm so sorry. I'm yes, sorry please. Not no. Okay. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Weird. So they receive authority as kings with the beast, but this authority only lasts for one lousy hour. What's going on there? Okay, go on. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Okay, so these ten horns that are on the beast, I mean, these are the ten horns that were on the beast, weren't they? Yeah. Right? Seven heads, ten horns, and they're ten kings who are kings, but they don't have a kingdom yet, but they receive power for one hour with the beast, 
and they have one mind and they'll give, so even though there's 10 of them, they have one mind, they agree together, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. Is that bad? Is that good? I don't know what's going on. Go on. These will make war with the lamb. Okay, hit pause there for a second. That's probably <coughs> bad because the lamb means Jesus, right? I mean, that's pretty clearly an image of Jesus. So they, so it sounds like the beast must be bad. They give their strength and authority to the beast, but they make war with the lamb. So this is going to be a big struggle. There's 10 of them. There's only one of him. How's it going to go? And the lamb will overcome them. And it'll only take five words to do it, apparently. Bang, bang. They make war with them. Boom. It's, it's over. You know, it just deals with them. Okay? Why? For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Okay. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So they're not waters, they're people of all different kinds. So pretty heady, isn't it? You, you have uh, heads are mountains, horns are kings, and waters are people, and so on. Okay, go on. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast... Now, these are explicitly the ten horns on the beast. These will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Okay, what's the movie rated now? Uh, um, so, the ten horns, even though the woman is sitting on this beast, right? Mm-hmm. The horns of the beast hate her, and they make her desolate and naked, and they eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Okay, now here's our text for tonight. Okay, so that was a nice bracing warm-up. Uh, here's verse 17 of Revelation 17. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast. Weird. Okay, so God put it in their hearts, or did you, did you say mind or something? Into their hearts. To, into their hearts to fulfill his purpose or his will in the old King James, and to agree or to be of one mind in your translation, right? Uh -huh. And to give their kingdom to the beast for how long? Until the words of God are fulfilled. Mm. One more verse, friends. I think we can make it. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Mm. Wow. So Babylon, all mystery, harlot, woman, city, and reigns over the kings of the earth. All kinds of imagery in here. And uh, quite a bit of it is shocking. And this image of the beast is most mysterious because the beast seems horrible it's scarlet, seven heads, ten horns. Uh, its horns attack the harlot. And yet it seems like a good thing because God put it in their hearts to fulfill his will or his purpose. And they have one mind and they give their, king, their horns of the beast and they give their kingdom to the beast that they're part of until the words of God will be fulfilled. Uh, very, very, very odd indeed. Okay, now, uh, might it interest you, dear Bible study years, to know that the beast 
means the Word of God. Swedenborg says the beast means the Bible. What? How could that be? What did it say again? So the woman is sitting on this beast, but it's all, you know, it's scarlet. It's a scarlet beast. It's full of names of blasphemy. Well, what does that mean? Well, Swedenborg says, oh, that means that there, there was a church that was sitting on the word. It was based on the Bible, but it had twisted it. And that's why the beast is scarlet. That's why it has full of names of blasphemy. It's actually a good thing that's been turned into a bad thing, but the beast is actually has a good meaning. It's just been twisted. And uh, later on, what does it say? You have these people. The beast that you saw was and is not. That's about the fact that Scripture was read at one time, and then it was not read. You know, there's been times when the Bible was actually banned, like, like it was illegal in Italy for a while to, to, to read Scripture. So it was, and then it is not, and it'll ascend out of the bottomless pit, but it'll go to perdition, which I think also has to do with that crazy reading of it. And then these people whose names are not written in the book of life, in other words, they're people who are not living good lives, are absolutely astonished that this beast used to exist, it stopped existing, and yet it still exists. Like the amazing thing about the word is that even when it is much hated, when it's much twisted, when it's rejected, when it's actually illegal to read it, the thing just keeps going. They marvel. Even pe people who are live, living evil lives are just like, a like, how does that thing keep going? You know, the book is, is disgusting and horrible and says all kinds of weird, strange things in it, and it just keeps going. You may have heard me say before, it sells 800 million copies a year. You know, people marvel. This thing yet is. You know, it is not, and yet it is. Okay. And uh, so, the beast, the what, there are seven kings, which has to do with truth from Scripture. I'm going through this too fast, I know. But um, out of seven kings, the seven kings mean all the truth of Scripture. Five of them have fallen. They've fallen to the sword. It means falsity. They've, those truths have been destroyed. That means all of the truths in Scripture have been destroyed, except for two of them. The one is... And one has not yet come, and when he comes, he must just continue a short amount of time. What does that mean? Swedenborg says that what that means is that that one king that has survived is the notion that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the one thing that lived out of that out of all the truth in there, that's the one thing that was true. And there's another one that's coming that hasn't hit yet, which is the realization that Jesus is God. And when that happens, the whole thing's going to come tumbling down because there's been a structure built on the idea that Jesus is not God, and therefore his power can be given to a human being and passed down through the succession and everything. And uh, so, the, and that beast is the eighth, and actually Swedenborg explains it doesn't mean the eighth king, it's the eighth mountain. Because mountain has to do with love, it has to do with what is good and doing good things. And so the seven heads are seven mountains. So all of this is sitting on this goodness and so on, but it's been all twisted. 
uh, okay, this is making a lot of sense. And, um, <laughs> and then uh, the ten horns are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. Kingdom, Swedenborg explains, means a church, a, a religion. So this is all talking about people who haven't broken away from that religion. Uh, they're still kind of part of it, but they don't have a church of their own yet. But they receive power as kings for one hour with the beast. They have a certain amount of power of a short duration because they believe in Scripture. They may not understand it terribly well or whatever, but they, 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 they have power because it's connected with Scripture. And these have one mind. These different people agree together, and they give their power and authority to the beast, which is a good thing to do, says Swedenborg. That means that you attribute this power and strength to Scripture. Yet, they don't really have the idea, as we just, you know, was suggested about the seven kings, that the Lord is the one God of heaven and earth. They don't, you know, that he's divine. Even, even in his human, he's divine. Uh, so that's why... They make war with the Lamb. They, they're not in accord with that. So they're all about Scripture. Yeah, Scripture's great, but they make war with that idea uh, that the Lord is the one God of heaven and earth. That's the Lamb. But what happens? Verse 14, the Lamb overcomes them. As they read Scripture, they start to realize eventually, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus is God himself. He's God all by himself. The lamb overcomes them. So they battle that idea at first, but he overcomes them. And why? Because he's the Lord of lords and King of kings. He's the God of heaven and earth. So um, now to me, just so far, all I'm doing is just paraphrasing what Swedenborg says. You can read this in, in his work, Apocalypse Revealed. Uh, you can read about it in Apocalypse Explained. And um, uh, this to me is the most astonishing explanation of the book of Revelation. To me, it's just absolutely astonishing. He can explain everything in there. Uh, I may not understand all of it, but it's pretty amazing. And then he speaks about the ten horns which hate the harlot. It's amazing, but he explains this as being in part, at least in sort of a sort of church history sense. This is about Protestantism breaking away from Catholicism. He says there are ten horns that hate the harlot. It doesn't say that that was a good thing necessarily, but man, if you study history, the virulent hatred that went on between Protestants, Catholics, the Thirty Years' War, all that kind of stuff, right? And when it says that they make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire, Swedenborg carefully explains that what that means is not that they do that to her, but they do that to the main concepts that they got from her. That, like, they do not think that's true. They get rid of, the, you know, they see the, those concepts of evil and false and so on. And that's what it means, that they make her desolate and naked. Not that they make the church that way, but that they get rid of those concepts with them. And look at verse 17. Let's read that again, shall we, dear reader? <clears throat> For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Swedenborg explains this as being that whole movement in the Protestant Reformation. It's a prediction. Now remember, when was this written? This was written, uh, you know, one and a half millennia before the Protestant Reformation. 
and he's saying that this was predicted in the book of Revelation that Protestantism would arise and that it would be led by the Lord to give their kingdom to the beast. And what that means is that they gave Sweden, this is exactly the word to use, they gave their church to the word. Give their kingdom to the beast. Such a strange expression. So weird. Like, why would you do that? Why would you express it that way? But he says that's what it means. And when you look at it, the, one of the sayings was sola scriptura. You know, it's all about scripture. It's all about the Bible. Uh, that's what it's all about. We're not talking about saints. We're not talking about this or that ritual or whatever. It's, if it's in the Bible, it's good. If it's not, it's out. And they give their uh, kingdom to the beast. But what does it say at the end of that verse? It's just for a limited time. Until the words of God are fulfilled. Yes, that's right. Because there's this whole judgment that's been going on in the book of Revelation. And so that was for a time. Swedenborg says they, they went off the rails too. A lot, a lot of people went off the rails. He's painting with a just ridiculously broad brush. Uh, but uh, that they give their kingdom of the beast was a very good thing. It's so interesting that that other group back there in um, verse 13, they give their power and strength to the beast, but they fight with the lamb. You know what I mean? It's possible to give yourself to the scriptures, but not actually get the Jesus thing. You're a little wrong about the Jesus thing. You don't understand the lamb thing. You don't understand that Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. So you're, you're all about the scripture, but it's not quite being interpreted correctly. This is what Swedenborg is outrageous enough to say, and I'm outrageous enough to pass on. <laughs> Fool enough to, to say out loud on the internet. So, um, and so until the words of God should be fulfilled, which is about the last judgment, at the last judgment, this will all be sort of wrapped up. Then what's going to happen next is go over to Revelation 19. And in Revelation 19, you have this beautiful scene. Uh, and uh, let's read verses 7 and 8 there. This is after, you know, some of this judgment has happened and some other judgment is about to happen. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. It's like she wasn't really ready in chapter 17. It was all about scripture, but it's not perfectly accurately understood from Swedenborg's standpoint. But now she's getting ready. And what is it that makes her ready? Next verse. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The fine linen is so... Could you get it any clearer, please, dear reader? Look at that. The fine linen. What does the fine linen mean? It means the good things that people are doing. If it's all about faith alone, that's not quite accurate. But if it's about the good thing, this is why she's getting herself ready. She's arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. If you look in Scripture, the high priest wears linen to go into the holy place. Uh, Jesus' body, when taken down from the cross, is wrapped in linen, and the linen is left there in the tomb. Uh, angels in the book of Revelation are wearing um, fine linen. And just a late, little later in here, there's an army and they're wearing fine linen who are following the Lord when he's riding the white horse. And uh, so that fine linen is an image of living by the truth that you know. You've got the truth and you're wearing it to do something, you know. And so uh, 
and that is the it's not the righteous ideas that didn't say that did it the fine linen is the righteous acts if i remember what you said dear reader fine linen is the righteous acts that's what she's wearing this is the big the huge signal difference this time. There was a, a wonderful turn towards Scripture and digging into the Bible, getting into the original languages. If you go over to Sweden and you see all these Lutheran churches over there, they have the Hebrew, uh, the Tetragrammaton, right up on the ceiling because it was like we're going back to the original language. You know, it was all about it was all about the word. Um, but there was this other phase yet to come. And let's read verse nine. Then he said to me. Right. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Mm, I want to hit pause right there and say, those of you who know about the <coughs> celebration of June 19th in the new church, there's a passage in True Christianity, I think it's number 791, where Swedenborg talks about the 12 disciples being sent out through the whole spiritual world. And a friend pointed out to me recently that there are three things that they say to everybody. I always only remembered two. They tell everybody that the Lord God Jesus Christ reigns, the second thing is, whose kingdom shall be for ages of ages. And they say this verse, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That was the message that went out to everybody. Um, so uh, let's skip down to verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. Mm. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Mm, that's right. And it has this beautiful description of him there. Let's skip down to verse 13 in the interest of time. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, dear reader, I wish that allegory was a little clearer. You know, look at that. It just says straight up. His name is the Word of God, right? So this is an image of the Word. This is the Lord as the Word. He's riding a white horse. A white horse, uh, we talked about in another Bible study, means the understanding. Uh, it means the, and a white horse means the understanding of truth. It's, a, it's an accurate, a true understanding of Scripture. And that's what the Lord is riding here. And His name is called the Word of God. And who's following Him in verse 14? And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Oh, so they're wearing fine linen too, and they're riding white horses too. So uh, the Lord comes out of this accurate uh, understanding of Scripture, and all the followers have this accurate. So we've gone even beyond the point of giving the kingdom to the beast. See what I mean? We've gone to the white horse stage or something. We've gone to the point where there's, there's fine linen, white and clean, because there's a true understanding of what lies within Scripture and a true understanding of who the Lord is. They're following the Lord, the one who's called faithful and true. And, uh, and look at verse 16. What does it say mm. of this rider on the white horse? And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Mm, go on. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Isn't that like blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb and so on? And um, 
And then it goes on to some more shocking imagery about eating the flesh of horses and captains and all kinds of people. We haven't left the book of Revelation just yet. And there's a battle, and then people are thrown into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And, um, and then the, the, eventually the uh, holy city, New Jerusalem, comes down from God out of heaven. So it's a whole picture of this last judgment process, and it's all about the reception of the word. It's all about making the word central. Um, uh, let's go back to Exodus chapter 12. I had prepared all sorts of scriptures tonight to demonstrate, but I don't think I'm going to use them. I wanted to demonstrate that creatures mean something human in scripture. So they're all, you know, the Lord is referred to as a lion. He's referred to as a lamb. He's riding a white horse. Uh, people are referred to as sheep and a flock and people who care for them are called a shepherd. And, you know, this is all through scripture that, that, that so marvel not. And you, you know, in Ezekiel and in the book of Revelation, there are these four living creatures that are around the throne. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, even in the ancient Christian tradition, these were seen as the four gospels. They've, they've been interpreted as the word, you know, that those living creatures are the word. They're an image of the word. Uh, look at Exodus uh, chapter 12. Uh, this is about the Passover, and people are being told how to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is all about a celebration of getting away from this bondage and slavery that they've been in in Egypt, and the Lord is releasing them with a powerful hand, says to Pharaoh, let my people go, and, and it's about to happen. And what? tell me what about the Passover they're going to eat this Passover lamb and look at verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Huh. Bitter herbs. Hmm. Like the lamb probably tasted good, but they were supposed to eat it with bitter herbs. Look at Numbers, so turn to the right and go to through Leviticus to Numbers. And I want to go to Numbers chapter 9. Another passage about the uh, day of unleavened bread. Uh, look at verses 9 to 11 there in Numbers 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If any one of you or your posterity is unclean because of a corpse or is far away on a journey, he may still keep the Lord's Passover. Uh-huh. And what will you do? On the 14th day of the second month at twilight, they may keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Bitter herbs. Bitter herbs were part of the feast. Uh Okay, two more scriptures I want to read. Go to the Psalms in the middle of your Bible. Uh, and then we'll just wrap this all up amazingly. It'll just, just be astonishing. Psalm 118, I think is what I want. Verse 22. Yes. That's it. We'll read a few more after that. Hold on, hold on. Certainly. Certainly. Verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Aha, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Go on. 
This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Mm, go on. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Look at verse 26. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, oh, sorry. I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Yes, that's right. Look at verse 28 and 29. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God. I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. So you see this context is all about this is the day that the Lord has made. He's coming in the name of the Lord. You know, it's all this exciting language and a crucial point made there is that the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. And you remember, good friends, that this is picked up in the New Testament. See if you can go to the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Mark chapter 12. Jesus cites this. People are challenging his authority. The scribes and Pharisees are challenging him and asking about his teaching and all that stuff. And he gives a parable about a vineyard and people killing the air and so on. And then what does he say at the end, verses 10 and 11 in Mark 12? Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. So the Lord uses this scripture, as you may know, to refer to himself. He was the stone that was rejected. That's become the chief cornerstone. Um, okay, let me try to get some thoughts out here. Um, the Bible comes across in so many ways as... Um, disgusting, strange, odd, off-putting, you know, what is going on, this horrible cop and, and uh, all this stuff. Uh, isn't it interesting that people were required at the time that they were being released from hell, from this bondage in Egypt, they were required to eat a meal that included something you don't want to eat, bitter herbs. Maybe they didn't have sauerkraut yet <laughs> or liver or something, but they were required to eat these bitter herbs. It was part of the process of getting out of hell and going to heaven was to eat this stuff that you don't really want to eat, but it's good for you. It's, uh, I have a friend who, who told me recently about a tradition um, where people go out in the spring and they take some of these really harsh, kind of, there's almost weeds that grow, and they, it's a purgative or something like and it sort of cleanses your system in the spring. You eat this just very bitter, nasty stuff, and it sort of flushes out all, all the winter toxins and everything. Uh, so the idea, isn't it, it like the bitter pill? Don't we have that idea in our culture that you, you know, there's a bitter pill that you have to swallow, but it's good for you? It's, it's good medicine. Uh, and it relates in my mind to the idea that the Lord is something that was rejected. The stone that the builders rejected, the people who built the church said, well, this looks good and let's not have that stone in there. 
that idea that Jesus is God. We can't figure that out. It makes no sense to us, or it interferes with our ability to hold power. Or whatever. And let's just leave that out. It doesn't look good there. I don't particularly like it. And the idea is, no, that stone that you don't like, that needs to be the foundation of your entire structure. Otherwise, you don't have what you need. You need to eat those bitter herbs. You need to use that rejected stone. It, it's good for you, you know, because we don't know what's, what's good for ourselves. Um, uh, so, uh, beast means several different things. It can just simply mean an animal, but it can also mean what we mean by a beast. I'm just fascinated. When, when you have this image in the New Testament, there's this image of John the Baptist, and he's strange, isn't he? Isn't he wearing strange clothing? Isn't he eating strange stuff? He's eating, you know, locusts and wild honey, and he's wearing this strange, he's just, he's a weird person out in the wilderness. And Swedenborg says that that's an image of how Scripture looks to you. It's weird, you know? It's weird and strange and a little scary, you know? That's the way that Scripture seems. And so it's so easy. And the Lord says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Someone wearing soft clothing, you know? What did you go out to see? That's a prophet. You want your prophet to be a little strange and scary, right? To, to tell you, look, you're doing everything wrong. You need, you need to change your ways. Repent and all that. Scripture is something... That whole story in Revelation 17, I don't know if the Lord had me do justice to it tonight or not, but that whole story is about an entire history of Christianity, different ways of looking at Scripture. Do you only accept one little truth out of it? You know, do you just say, okay, we'll take the part where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, and that other part where he says, I'll give my keys to Peter, and whatever he binds in, on earth will be bound in heaven, and all that kind of thing. And, but we'll extend that in a way that wasn't intended by the original scripture, and build a whole structure on that as the cornerstone. And then you get a, a different deal, a Protestantism that's very much about the scriptures, but somehow makes Romans 3.28 the, the cornerstone, you know, man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Twist that upside down and sideways to say that means you don't have to live by the Ten Commandments. All is crazy, even though there's thousands of passages that say you have to live well uh, to be saved. But it twisted upside down form. So we're all about the Scripture, but we have it upside down and backwards when we're reading it because uh, we put the wrong thing at the center. Uh, it's this story, but at least you get credit. It was God's will that the kingdom be given to the beast. But even more so now, in our world, friends, we live in a world that, you know, there are lots of people who are reading the scriptures. I don't know how much they're understanding or what they get out of it. Uh, I think there are people in our world who believe that Jesus is the one only God of heaven and earth. There are lots of people who don't see it that way, who see him as just a very good, enlightened master, human being like Buddha or somebody else. Uh, other people who are sort of confused, maybe he has a split nature and part of his divine, part of his human, the human part is just human or something, you know, is the, the word from eternity, you know, there's a lot of confusion about who he is, but at least there's a lot of reading of the scripture going on. Then there's a whole lot of people who feel disgusted by scripture. I think it's just some Bronze Age horrible book about animal sacrifice and cups full of fornication or something and, and drinking blood until you're drunk or something. And, and the whole thing should just be rejected out of hand. So you reject the liver. 
You reject that disgusting sauerkraut, but you're wondering what's missing in your life. What is missing in our culture? What is missing in our world? We're looking here. We're looking there. Maybe we'll get it out of this therapy. Maybe we'll get it out of watching that movie or this pastime or that drug, this opioid or somewhere. We're looking for, where is it? Where is that thing that we need? And you finally sit down with a divine nutritionist and he tells you, eat this, eat the word, you know, give your kingdom to that beast. It may frighten you, it may seem scary, but the reason it's got horns, that beast, if you really hang in there with it, if you live by it, if you welcome it into your life, if you give it strength and authority, you base your life on it, if you give your whole kingdom to it, if you get on a white horse and wear linen yourself and ride it, do what it says, Follow the Lord and understand that He's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. If you understand who He is and you live by His commandments, which is the same as loving Him, you understand that that beast is the Lamb. It's the most beautiful, merciful creature you could ever possibly imagine. That's what that scary, horrible beast is. That food has vitamins in it that you need. Our world needs, we need to give the kingdom to the beast. Doesn't it say in one passage in in the book of Revelation, the kingdoms of this world have become kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. What a beautiful situation. Uh, I envision a world in which there's so much devotion to the Lord, you know, and so much understanding of scripture. People are riding white horses. They're practicing it. They're becoming angels in this world and helping other people and curing problems and getting rid of other things and sidelining hell and pushing it out, out of the center of society. Uh, a beautiful, beautiful world. The one vitamin, the one substance that we need to get to that full health is that disgusting thing that we rejected in childhood, you know? It's that thing we didn't want to read, we didn't want to hear. It's that weird old Bronze Age book. That book has something to tell us. The lamb is in there. We may fight with the lamb, but thank God, the scripture says, he's going to overcome us. And at some point, we will realize, oh, that's you. Thank you, friends. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you for gathering us together in your most holy name. You are the one God of heaven and earth. We thank you, Lord, for what you have revealed in this world, a better understanding Thank you for taking us into these dark places in the book of Revelation and explaining a little bit of your mind, of your love, the purification that you're enacting in our culture, in our world, and the increase of your government and peace that has yet to come and that will unfold to greater and greater degrees as the thousands and tens of thousands of years of eternity pass. We thank you, Lord, for what, we're do- what you're doing. We are sorry for rejecting you. Sorry for building the whole building and leaving you out in the front yard, but we want to make you central, Lord, and build everything around you. We want to give everything 
to you. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting so we can see him properly. <laughs> 